So today with me on The Hot Dish is Dr. Julio Friedman, an amazing Renaissance guy. Not only is he was he Obama's fossil guy and uh, a world-renowned expert on carbon capture and on climate, he also is a penist, right? I mean, it's I've all seen, true. Yes, Thank it you. is. You are like like a Renaissance guy, and a great friend of mine, and somebody that I worked very closely with when I was in the Senate, um, especially during the Obama years, to talk about what we could do to really make a difference in climate, looking at existing kinds of economies. And um, one of the things that we worked on together, um, which I think was very effective, was the work that we did on carbon capture, sequestration, and utilization which, um, you know, a lot of people don't believe there is anything that can actually, that, that, that those programs could actually solve the challenges that we have with climate. Um, uh, you're talking to two people who believe not only uh, can they, but they we have to engage if we are going to meet the climate challenge. And so I wanted to spend a little time talking with you, Julio, today about um why it is that we need to develop carbon capture and sequestration utilization programs in order to meet the global climate challenge that we have, but also how rural America can engage and and use this not as a kind of scary, transformative change in the energy economy, but as a real economic opportunity. And so if you could just kind of talk a little bit about the role that uh, uh carbon capture can play in meeting our our climate goals and basically uh, preventing climate catastrophe, it'd be great. Uh, Well, I'm delighted to be here, and thank you for having me on uh, One Country. Uh, I think the focus on rural economies and rural voters is particularly helpful in this context because in some ways climate change puts rural communities at risk. Also, the energy transition puts a lot of rural communities at risk. Part of why I'm so enthusiastic about carbon capture and storage, CO2 removal, all of these other approaches, is that they provide additional ways that can serve rural communities and rural economies as well. Uh, And I very firmly believe that in the specific case about carbon capture use and storage, or CCUS. Um, Most people, when they think about energy, think almost exclusively about their car and about their wall, which is where they get energy from. They get energy from the gas station and they get energy from the outlet and their wall. And it turns out that to tackle the risks of global climate change, you just need to think about a lot more things. Recently, we issued a report on heavy industry and the need they have for heat. And about a quarter of global emissions are heavy industry. This is steel, cement, chemicals, fertilizer, glass, all of these things that we use a lot of in the world but don't use a lot of in our daily lives are things that have a lot of carbon in the system. And we don't have great options for those, and we can't just electrify them. Let me give you one example from our report. Just the heat, just burning rocks to melt rocks, like burning coal to make cement and stuff, just that is 10% of global emissions, which is more than all of the emissions from cars and planes. 
Isn't that incredible? I think people don't appreciate how much industrial CO2 um, uh, utilization actually, uh, you know, uh, emissions happen. But what's interesting about it is because they're at that point source, it offers a real opportunity for change in the carbon capture world. And so just kind of explain where the technology is right now, Ulio, and um, where you're hopeful and where you think we need to make more investments. Right. And the technology is in a pretty good place. It's quite mature. We've been separating CO2 from point source emissions since 1938, and we've been storing it underground since 1972, and we've been monitoring it to keep it out of the atmosphere since 1996. We just know a lot about this. And there's 5,000 miles of CO2 pipeline in the United States, mostly through rural areas. And there's, they're managed by the Department of Transportation and the EPA permits wells. So we have all the pieces in place ready to go. The question is, how do you finance these things? How do you get enough money so that an investor gets their money back? It's a pretty straightforward question. And you personally played a huge role in getting 45Q tax credits amended and into that mix as a way to help finance a bunch of projects. And they're going to be most important, actually, on these industrial projects where the need is most urgent and where the options are the smallest. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. Most people would say, well, this is about doing something with coal. And yes, it is about making our, you know, that option still available, but doing it in a clean energy context. But, you know, I've been just absolutely having gotten involved in this beyond kind of the coal industry, been amazed at how much CO2 is emitted from industrial, particularly cement. And, you know, I've visited with people over at UCLA who are talking about not just just um, capturing and injecting, but utilization of CO2 uh, as a byproduct and actually, you know, within within the uh, context of uh, this is a valuable byproduct, how do we use this byproduct um, kind of going forward? And so can you talk a little bit about where we're at with some of these technologies in terms of utilization. So in terms of the largest volumes of CO2, today we're talking about enhanced oil recovery. And personally, I think that has an important role because you create a barrel of oil with a much lower total footprint, and there's some benefit to that. But what's exciting are these new options that are coming on the horizon. Cement and concrete is going to be the biggest of these. And you know, cement emits 5 billion tons a year. Concrete is 55 billion tons of stuff. So we can actually get a large volume of CO2 in there. And what's wonderful is these kinds of technologies from like the UCLA guys or a company in New Jersey called Solidia um, is that you can use the CO2 to bind the concrete instead of water. That you, It's actually cured by CO2. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, you actually make a better product. It's stronger and it's more corrosion resistant. And at the same time, you can get very large reductions in the total CO2 content through these processes. So just an incredible win-win. Yeah, no. Just an incredible win-win. And 10 years ago, this stuff didn't really exist. And now it does. There's production facilities. And importantly, for a lot of rural economies, often a cement plant or a concrete plant is an important anchor of their community. Mm-hmm. In upstate New York, near Albany, like this is an important part of the of the ecosystem. And the same thing in places like New Mexico and Arizona and Texas. And to see an opportunity where you can make a better product and reduce emissions and create jobs and opportunities, 
strikes me as exactly the kind of opportunity America should be pursuing and investing in. Well, and the other the other piece of this uh, is, you know, everybody says, well, you know, as long as this president is the president, we don't have to confront any of the the challenges. But you're seeing already Wall Street respond saying, look, we, we have a horizon where we look at investment that's way beyond yeah, a four-year uh, presidential term. And they're starting to basically say, look, we expect you to be carbon neutral if we are going to give you money, if we're going to invest in your businesses. And so this is that th- there's a there's a, uh, a kind of positive carrot kind of thing, which is this is really cool technology. This is something that can actually enhance your product. It will make your product better. Um, but you also are are by by acting responsibly now in this time when you don't feel a lot of threat on uh, regulation, you actually are are ensuring your opportunities in the future. I mean, one of the things that I said over and over again to the coal industry: Look, you're going to live in a carbon constrained world. You might as well start developing strategies on how you're going to meet that challenge. And I think the coal industry met the challenge traditionally through a political engagement instead of a technological engagement. Uh, you know, that's changing, but it may be changing too late to save that industry. Um, we're looking in North Dakota with um, a couple coal-fired power plants actually shutting down. And, and this is kind of, um, in a state like North Dakota, where uh, very pro-fossil fuel kind of political environment, um, you're seeing you're seeing utility companies saying we can't meet the standards that are imposed um, on us in terms of the PUC or the Public Utilities Commission that expects us to to use clean energy. We can't do that if we're going to use coal. And so we, we we've 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 uh, I mean I, I think the warning is there and the example of how not to do this is there, and there is a real opportunity, especially in industrial. Um, uh, kind of uh, emissions to utilize the other kinds of credits and R&D credits, what's available to to develop these technologies. But I want to shift just quickly, Ulio, to, you know, um, what what a lot of people in North Dakota and, and rural America are interested in, which is what role can farmers play in how they um, engage in their agricultural practices that may, in fact, provide a lucrative opportunity to participate in in a um, in a carbon kind of environment that will build their cash flow. So I just came back from California where this conversation is very real and very much live, and they're developing this concept of working lands in which the agricultural system is doing its own CO2 removal and its own soil health improvements at the same time as you're storing CO2 in the deep, deep subsurface as well, and that together that can be a rich working land kind of experience. Specifically for farmers, we're seeing a couple of new approaches come online that really look very promising. One of these is called AMP, Adaptive Multi-Paddock Grazing. And <laughs> okay. It, it, <laughs> and basically, it, it works kind of like the buffalo worked hundreds of years ago, in which you have really intensive grazing of, of your herd in one location, and you take the grass like from very, you know, from four feet high down to, you know, a half a foot, and then you 
move the paddock and they go to the next site and do this. And so it's very intense grazing for a short amount of time and you move the herd over a large area. And what that does is it allows uh, more soil to uh, carbon to enter the soil. It allows a more diversity of species on the land. You get better water retention in the mm-hmm. soil, so you get better yields. The farmers who have been doing this, for example, in Mississippi, have doubled or tripled the yield that they're getting out of their farms, while at the same time also increasing the number of animals on the land and increasing the soil carbon content. Yeah, and, 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 within... and it's just a small change in the way that they do their business, but it can really yield dividends. And now we're starting to see government programs that can potentially provide additional revenues on top of that for our working lands and farmers. You know, it's interesting because we have a number of farmers in North Dakota. I've gotten to know these folks pretty well. And the program within the USDA is the EQIP program, which helps buy fencing, which helps basically buy the infrastructure to um, engage in this kind of farming practice. But one of the reasons why farmers in North Dakota do it is because you can support a bigger family unit on a smaller unit of land. And one of the exactly. one of the really interesting things is during our drought a couple years ago, farmers who had engaged in this practice, what you just described, actually found that their um, their uh, grass recovered quicker, that they were able to retain more moisture, that they were less, uh, you know, drought affected and, and more resistant to kind of weather patterns and weather changes. So as climate changes and you enter into these, these broader wet-dry cycles, your soil is better adapted to that to the, that climate change when you engage in these practices. Right. It's more resilient, which is great. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, there's, there's a ton of ways. I, you know, the North Dakota Farmers Union actually led the way a number of years ago in trying to figure out how do you monetize these practices to reward farmers for engaging in a kind of carbon capture, you know, uh, program that would, in fact, um, help uh, reduce CO2 into the environment or at least retain it in the soils longer. And it, it didn't get much play. I mean, I think it was back in the days when, you know, the, the idea of, of catastrophic climate change was kind of more theoretical than what people believe it is now. And, and so um, I think there's a real opportunity for groups to get together and to have a conversation about how we can uh, incentivize this kind of behavior that wins for the environment and wins for um, climate, but also wins for the farmer. And, you know, those are the kinds of um, opportunities that I think uh, if you just accept that you're going to be in a carbon-constrained world, you can find lots of ways to make that work economically for rural America. Right. So, and one of the things that I found interesting is that, so the people who've done this kind of grazing practice, one of their surprise benefits that they just really love is that things like the quail have come back, that they haven't had quail on their farms for 15 years, and then suddenly they have quail again. Yeah. And, it, and that there's nesting birds and migratory flocks that they hadn't seen for a decade, and they're coming back to their land. And farmers live so close to the land, they're really sensitive to these kinds of issues. And it's a delight that they take delight in seeing this restoration while they're making money, while they're doing better business. Yeah, one of the there, one of the things that I did in in my office when I was in in the Senate is I asked uh, the soil conservation folks for a soil column to be displayed, and and pe- my staff thought I was crazy. 
Um, and people, when they came in, they would see what looked like dirt, right, on the wall. Yeah. And, and I would point at it and I'd say, that is North Dakota's most valuable natural resource, is our soils. It's what we do. 90% of the land in North Dakota is engaged in production agriculture. And just as we looked for the win-win with the environmental community and the fossil community on carbon capture sequestration, I think there's a huge opportunity to look for the win-win if people get over their you know, kind of bias about uh, how we label what's happening and start accepting that um, there's going to be a, a economic reaction that people have have to climate. And so one of the things, Ulio, that I was going to mention is that um, uh, if you look at a company in North Dakota called Bushel, what Bushel does is they track a bushel of, let's say, corn, and they know if it's been planted and harvested on land where these conservation practices and these um, uh, CO2 practices have been engaged, it then becomes more valuable in the downstream kind of market area, whether it's going to get converted to ethanol or whether it's going to get converted to feed. It meets certain requirements that states um, and countries are imposing on grains that that they be grown a certain way that is sensitive mm-hmm. to what's happening with climate. Well, I love the fact that big data has come to Fargo. <laughs> it just makes me happy. Let me, it's let always me. been in Fargo. <laughs> True. Leo. Well, uh, actually, North, the good people at North Dakota State and their supercomputing center are a national treasure, and uh, this is hopefully something that they can pursue as well. Let me say that it's not just farmers, though. Um, for people who are in the timber industry or in the forestry industry, uh, we are seeing opportunities, again, like in California, where we have 100 million dead trees, and it's a fire risk, and it's yep. a climate risk, and what do we do? And the state of California is now looking to harvest all that deadwood, turn it into hydrogen, to gasify it to hydrogen, and then combine that with carbon capture. And in California, there is a very large policy premium on that through the low carbon fuel standard that's about $200 a ton. And that's probably high enough to finance a lot of projects. And so we're starting to see alignment between policies that help people who do work on working lands, whether it's farmers with agricultural wastes or uh, working forests, and the need for low carbon fuels and policies that can help pull these things together and help get the projects financed. And I see the creation of jobs and the creation of new fuels and new technologies and thriving rural America all coming together with these kinds of approaches. Yeah, you know, this doesn't have to be the big fight or the big ideological fight. Um, you know, when we when we know that um, we have these opportunities to... Um, basically work together, whether you want to believe that climate is a problem or not. I think everybody understands, especially what's happening in Wall Street. It's not just being driven by regulation, government regulation, but there's an investment incentive now. um, And and shareholders are demanding of large companies that they be more responsive to climate, that, that there's a premium um, within the the kind of financing system for companies that are more sensitive, but before well, it's not just a premium, it's turning into both carrots and sticks. Right. Um, I had the good fortune of hearing you, Senator, talking at a rural co-op a couple of years ago, and and you asked, "Hey, everybody, raise your hands if you think climate's going away." Yeah. And no one raised their hand. Yeah, and th- and this understand that this was right after Donald Trump was elected. 
Mm-hmm. It was the day after, remember? Yes. And and you and I were on the stage, and I thought, okay, let's let's get the elephant out of you know out on the table here or on the, out on the stage. I said, okay, you know, Donald Trump just got elected. He believes that this is a hoax. Um, he pr- promises you that uh, you know he's not going to ever regulate CO two. He's going to pull out of Paris. You know, so the so the environment's pretty good. I mean, the political environment's pretty good for you know kind of uh, you know at so least in the next usual, four yeah. years. Yeah, to 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 not have this threat hanging your over your head. I said, how many of you think that um, the climate discussion has gone away? Only two of these probably sixty year old plus ranchers and farmers raised their hand in a room of a probably at least seven hundred people. I mean, I think they understand right. that what that challenge is, challenge is, and mm-hmm. I think they're looking well, and, for and, solutions and, that don't disrupt completely what people are doing. Well, but increasingly, Wall Street and not just Wall Street markets around the world are rewarding good climate behavior, and they're punishing bad climate behavior. So, people who raise beef through this kind of adaptive multipatic grazing may find that they sell at a higher price, even in Japan or China because of laws that are passed there. I mean, 197 countries signed the Paris Agreement. Every market on earth cares about this. And we had the largest investment companies in the world, like BlackRock, making a point of saying that they are going to divest from Mm -hmm. dirty industries and invest in clean ones. And they voted with their feet, actually, by divesting in heavy oil. And at the same time, just today, BP made a major announcement about how they're going to shift their core business practice. And they're a multinational company. They work everywhere. That uh, This is a, the new curve that everyone is graded on. Everyone's going to be graded on carbon going forward. And you don't have to like it, but you have to know it. Yeah. And if you know it, you can think about how to make the most of it, and- how to grow your business, how to serve your communities, and how to make a rich, verdant world that we all want to live in. And, and I used to tell people, I don't care if it's against your religion to believe that we have a climate problem, a CO2 problem. The reality is that you will go the way of the coal industry if you don't adapt. And, right. and you know, and, and I hate to say that because I, I think the opportunity for coal was probably 10 years ago. And, and now you're seeing, with cheaper natural gas, you're seeing these conversions already. That's been a huge economic driver. But mm-hmm. you also are seeing, I, I asked people, I said, so how many new clean coal power plants are there on the, the drawing board? There's none. You couldn't get financing, never mind the regulation. You couldn't get right. financing. And so it is so critically important that people understand that this is not a threat um, that is political. This is this is an economic reality that they're going to have to adapt to. But before I let you go, Ulio, I want you just for a minute, a couple minutes, talk about air capture because I'm always fascinated and a lot of people believe it's impossible, but we know that there's been small demonstration projects and even larger projects that um, are basically mining CO2 out of the air. And so could you talk about where that is right now with the state of technology? Sure. And, and the whole challenge here is that, you know, with, with a, a set of challenges as enormous as atmospheric carbon and climate, um, everybody gets a chance to work, right? Yeah. This is a team effort. And there's one group of people on this team who have been focused, how do you get the most CO2 out of the air as quickly as possible? And they've built these machines called direct air capture devices that do it. And there's a handful of plants already working around the world that do this. There's about uh, one in Iceland that I'm fond of, that you can go online, 
and buy a subscription and they'll pull CO2 out of the air for you for a price. Like it's wow. like they'll just do it. It's transactionally there. There's also another company. This is based in uh, British Columbia that's partnered with Occidental Petroleum. They're building a one million ton a year project. Mm -hmm. And most of that CO2 is going to be used for enhanced oil recovery. Some of that CO2 may just be sequestered underground. But they see their future business model tied to decarbonizing not just their operations, but their products. And so a company like Occidental has said, hey, we need a pathway. What can we do? And they started investing in these companies. Yeah. There's about a half dozen of these companies out there, and they're quite impressive, and the costs are dropping super fast. So, the costs are dropping just as fast as batteries and solar panels and windmills. And there will be a point where it'll be cheaper to pull CO2 out of the air than it will be for other things. And there will be a point at which you can pull CO2 out of the air and use it to, say, convert into a fuel or a chemical that you can use in your community. So, so um, it, it's, it's an amazing, uh, technologically, uh, driven by the threat of regulation, let's admit it, but also driven by the threat of catastrophic climate change, the innovation that we always see born out of these, these events when we are willing to tackle the problem and admit it's a problem that we have. Is is phenomenal, and and if if I wanted to learn more about this, um, where would you where uh, about carbon capture sequestration? Can you give us a couple sources that you would recommend um, our listeners go to to understand what we've been talking about a little bit better? So three absolute resources you can't miss. One of them, the Department of Energy Office of Fossil Energy and their partner in National Energy Technology Lab in Pittsburgh and Morgantown is an incredible natural, national resource on this topic, like unquestionably. Second, I would encourage people to go to the Global CCS Institute. They're a not-for-profit corporation, and this is all they do. They just focus on it, and they've got wonderful fact sheets and studies and short reports that talk about all of the issues in the system. Third, if I may be so humble, <laughs> I would encourage people to come to the Columbia website at the Center on Global Energy Policy, we have a separate toggle under carbon management under work we do, and that'll lead you to my site, and it'll tell you about some of the many projects that we're engaged in, everything around how do you finance these things, to how does it work in heavy industry, to things like direct air capture, to how does it feed into questions of social equity and justice. All of these are things that are coming on fast, and we're working super hard to create products and reports and information and knowledge that the world can take advantage of. Well, and I certainly hope your listeners will do that. Well, I, th I think what we'll probably do is put links to those sites up on our website um, when we post this uh, this podcast. But I always learn so much from you. You are a dear, dear friend and an amazing, amazing talent and a national treasure as we look at practical solutions to some of the great cha economic challenges and, and climate challenges that we have in this country. And I look forward to the next time I can hear you play piano because you're well, pretty good at that, too. Kind of you to say, well, you're a national treasure yourself. <laughs> I look forward to our next meeting uh, with a great deal of enthusiasm. Okay. Thank you so much. We'll catch you later. Thanks so much, Julio, for joining me here at the, the Hot Dish. All the best.